0: What's up, founders, and welcome back to the In Demand Podcast, where we talk all about how to reach your very first 1 million in ARR. I'm your host, Asia Arangio, and I'm the founder of Demand Maven, where we work with early-stage SaaS companies on reaching their very first growth milestones. Let's do this. So I've been tossing and turning about how to talk about this without just violently offending people. (laughs) And I've come to the conclusion that no, fuck it. Like, there's not really any other way to say it. Not all founders are good at product management. There, I said it. Not all founders and builders, makers are good at product management. I know, I know, I know. And I'm saying this from personal experience. Even I am realizing and learning, like, oh, oh man, even I. I also struggle with product management, and I, I feel like I can speak about this from, even though I run a services business, you know, services businesses still have products. We still have things to sell. And the work that I've been doing in growth, not just growth marketing, but full business growth, the whole enchilada with my SaaS clients, the growth work that I've been doing, I'm noticing, and I have noticed throughout the years, that some teams really, really struggle with product management. Here's what I mean. So product management is ultimately the process of determining and prioritizing what features to build, what value to provide, and deciding how to actually get that done. So that that's product management. And that's product, that's very high level product management. A lot of people think product management is as simple as you know, you ask a customer, hey, what don't you like about the product? Customer says, okay, well, I don't like this, this and this. And then, okay, well, great. What would you like it to do instead? Well, I, I wanted to do this and I want it to do that and I want it to do this. Okay, great. We'll put that in the backlog. And then it goes into the backlog and then a sprint is determined. And then you look at all your notes and you say, okay, well, these customers wanted these things. These customers wanted these things and these customers wanted these these things. And then you say, okay, well, what can we do? That's really easy. That doesn't you know, cost a whole lot to do, and blah blah blah. And then, and then what ends up happening is you plan this two-week sprint or four-week sprint or whatever it is, and then you go and you build the thing. And sometimes those things are really small tweaks. Sometimes they are very large feature builds, like very large expansions in terms of the product. But for the most part, a lot of a lot of founders and teams believe that that's product management. And the more that I've been doing this growth work the more that I'm realizing, oh, not everyone really truly understands the full breadth and depth of product management, and also, not everyone is good at it. And what I mean by that is, not everyone necessarily is clear about what should we build, why should we build it, how does that create value for customers that ultimately generates revenue for the business, and also still makes the customer happy. And I think a lot of teams and founders, for better or for worse, believe that product management is order-taking. And I'm here to tell you, it is not order-taking. It's not order-taking. It's not this, you know, oh, well, customers have been asking for this, therefore we should build it. And also, if enough customers ask for something, then we should definitely build it. That's not necessarily what product management is all about product management is ultimately weighing the uh, it's ultimately weighing the trade-offs between building some type of value for some customers that is ultimately monetizable versus not. And also too, the way that you build your product ultimately has implications on your go-to-market strategy. The more that you expand in certain areas and also the more that you decide not to expand in certain areas, directly impacts your go-to-market strategy, the customers you're realistically going to be able to serve, and then therefore your total addressable market. And if you believe in TAM, SAM, SOM, then your serviceable market, and then so on and so forth. And depending on what you prioritize, some of those things are going to be monetizable, and some of those things are not going to be monetizable ever in a million years. And what I think is really interesting is also this concept of Not everyone is good at this. Not everyone is good at making these decisions. Part of this is because there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what product management is actually all about. Again, a lot of founders and teams think that product management is all about order-taking. And I'm here to tell you that it's absolutely not about order-taking. In fact, customers are the absolute worst at telling you what to build and even to some extent why they want you to build it. They're not product managers. And if you're expecting customers to tell you what to build, I think you're going to be very, very disappointed. And also too, there's this concept uh, that I've been noodling on, which I'll come back to in a second, but there's this concept that I've been noodling on that I think is also just low-key, quietly killing companies. And it's this differentiator between building quality of life improvements and prioritizing only those versus building and prioritizing value generators. I'll come back to that concept in a second. But what I'm finding though is that uh, you've all heard it before. You've, you've heard that famous quote uh, by Henry Ford that he didn't actually say, by the way, he didn't actually say this. But there's this quote that's like, oh, well, if I had asked my customers what they wanted, they would have told me that they wanted a faster horse. And well, first, he never actually said that. Caitlin Burgoyne of, oh, goodness, of course, I'm going to blank on what Caitlin Burgoyne built. But Caitlin Burgoyne, if you, if you know her, you know that she talks a lot about customer research and you know that she's already done this tear down like she's already proven that like he didn't actually say this. It's actually not documented anywhere that he actually said that. But even if he did say it, what he's really saying is yeah, asking customers what to build is is absolutely terrible. <laughs> it's a terrible idea. They're only going to be able to give you the context upon which they're already executing or operating in, which is the solution space. So if you are familiar with problem space versus solution space then you already know that the customer is experiencing the solution space so all the feedback that they're going to be able to give you is going to be purely based on the solution space so what'll happen is you hear from a customer hey i i really don't like the way that these reports are showing up i really want to be able to view the reports weekly as opposed to daily and then you say okay so you so just to clarify you just want weekly you don't want daily And it's like, oh, well, you know, yeah, like I I want both, but weekly would be great. Okay, I can build that for you. And what happens here is you're already in the solution space and so is the customer. And so when you ask the customer, hey, what sucks about our product? What do you wish was better? Oh, well, reports doesn't have that weekly view. Really wish I had that weekly view. And so you stay in the solution space. You immediately start thinking, I know exactly how to build that. Based off of what the customer recommended or requested. Going back to the Henry Ford example that, again, he didn't actually say. So he's asking, so he's saying, you know, like if I asked my customers what they wanted, they'd ask for a faster horse. So that's great, but that's the solution space. We as product managers need to take it to the problem space. Why do you want a faster horse? Well, I want to get from point A to point B even faster. Okay. Is it, required that it's a horse? It's like, well, no, but that's what I know of. Because again, the customer is in the solution space. They are only operating within the context of what they already know. But if we take it back to the problem space of, I want to get from point A to point B faster, then we can use that as a way to impact how we think about what product we put in front of them. Well, technically going from point A to point B faster, there's a couple of ways that that could happen. And horse at the time just so happened to be the fastest method that was known to everyone at the time. But Henry Ford was a smart guy. He was like, you know what? Automobiles, vehicles, we've already got carts. What if the cart powered itself? That would get people from point A to point B faster. And if they're not attached to having the horse, then it solves that job. It solves that job to be done. Going back to my other example with a customer asking for the weekly report. So these and things like this happen constantly and it's about even more minute things. So we worked with an LMS once, a learning management system and, and the types of requests that customers will have, they would be so specific. Like I want people or I, I want total control over how, when, and where people consume the content. And so we'd ask, okay, well, like give us some examples. And they say, well, You know, like right now we're able to control, you know, like the ability for students to consume content like at their own time. But we want to be able to phase out content so they can only consume like a new module, for example, every week. So it's like, oh, okay, so interesting. So you want you want like time based content, like release schedules, basically like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And so like we would get like these really, really specific requests and even like it's tough to give you even like more examples of this, but I feel like you know what I'm talking about. They're like really, really, really hyper specific and it's always specific to like some kind of feature. And what I thought was really interesting about this particular company's product management process was they would take that request at face value and then never do any other exploring. So they would never say, well, why? Why do you want that? What is it that you're trying to accomplish? What does that help you do? And I've always wondered. And this this client was from several was from a few years back, and this was before we were doing you know the really deep growth work that we do now. When we were more like on the marketing side, I would say. But it was so interesting because I I remember thinking, but is like yes, like they want that really specific feature and I, and I or that changed that feature and I'm sure that, that change to that feature is going to make their life easier in some kind of way. But from a product perspective, from when like from the perspective of someone who is structuring value, uh, that, that's what product managers are ultimately doing, you are providing shape to value and you're using product as your medium. And when you think about providing shape to value and using product as your medium, what if that request along with several other requests what if that actually unlocked a whole new set of features not just this little micro change but something that ultimately generated value and that's what brings me to this concept of quality of life improvements versus value generators so i started this whole thing with like okay like i'm just gonna come out and say it like i I think, I think there are a lot of founders out there and a lot of teams that are out there that really struggle with product management. And one of the things that I am certain that they struggle with and don't yet maybe realize it or know it is product discovery. So product discovery is the process of conducting qualitative research to identify and, op- and structure opportunities to build and expand the product to address new customer jobs to be done and or provide new customer value or value to customers. And the process of this is certainly part of the product management process. And I think a lot of teams do some product discovery. And I think many of them would consider, you know, talking to customers like, hey, like, what do you want? What don't you like about this? I'm pretty sure many of them would consider that to be product discovery. But product discovery is so much more about understanding the problem space which is a very different mindset to be in. Too many teams and founders are operating in the solution space, which is, okay, this is the solution that I provided you. What do you wanna change about that solution? Okay, great, here's another solution for you. And what that does is it creates this cycle of building what I call quality of life improvements. Quality of life improvements are little micro changes to features that on the one hand, seem like they give a lot of lasting value, but at the end of the day, don't necessarily expand the value enough for customers to stay customers. On the flip side, we have what are called value generators. These are investments in the product that expand it in a particular way that ultimately generates more value for the customer, and it's a lasting effect. It's a lasting impact it enables the customer to stay around for longer because value generators ultimately answer more jobs to be done, larger jobs to be done, and not necessarily always prioritizing the small ones. I'll give you an example. Quality of life improvements tend to be changes to features that already exist. So the report example that I gave, the customer who comes to you and is like, okay, like I like the reporting feature, but I really need this, this, and this. I need a weekly view and I need I need a daily view and I need something else. So. I would consider this to be a quality of life improvement. The reports feature already existed. Reporting already existed. It wasn't something net new. It wasn't like a net new value add. What happened was you built reporting for them, great. And then the customer came back with more requests. Okay, well I needed to do this, this and this and this and this. Usually what that tells me is a couple of things. The first is we probably didn't do like good enough UX research here we probably didn't do enough research to really understand the full requirements of what reporting needed to do in the first place. And that's why we're hearing like 10 different customers ask for like 20 different things. Probably wasn't thorough enough in some ways. I wanna be careful here because I am all about the MVP whenever it comes to shipping. Uh, ultimately you do need to ship. Things are not going to always be perfect. But usually when we get like 20 requests to make all these like tiny little you know tweaks to the feature that we just launched, usually that's an indicator that we probably just didn't do enough research. And we probably didn't have enough of a design sprint to, or design thinking sprint to get enough feedback to really know and understand what the full requirements were, which means that we have to do now more work to really understand that. But the thing about quality of life improvements is that they usually solve extremely small, super teeny tiny micro jobs. And I also wanna be careful here because I'm not saying that quality of life improvements are trash. They're absolutely necessary, you need them. Quality of life improvements ultimately do make the product easier to use in every sense of the way, uh, of the way of saying that. So easier to use in terms of UX, easier to use in terms of like the overall experience, even the UI. Quality of life improvements do matter, they are important. But the thing about quality of life improvements is that if you bank your whole product on them, what you're gonna find is Customers will leave the product after six months, a year, whatever it is. They will leave the product because they find something new and better that ultimately solves more larger jobs for them. They get more value across more aspects of the business. A great example is HubSpot. So you already have probably heard of HubSpot. HubSpot started out as marketing automation, and then over the years, it has dramatically expanded its value across not just the marketing function, but the sales function, the customer success function, the support function. It has slowly over the years created what we call value generators. They have built and expanded the product and also acquired companies to further expand the value. Even though every single feature they build and every single aspect of the product or the platform that they build, it might not be perfect and it certainly isn't complete. But what matters is that they expand the value enough across many different jobs, and in this case for many different verticals and people and teams, that once someone buys the product, it's sticky enough that it it has lasting power. And what I worry about for so many SaaS companies out there that are on the path to a million or 10 million or wherever you're at, is that you're stuck in that quality of life improvement loop. The things that you guys prioritize and build, they're all quality of life improvements. They're not actually value generators. The thing about value generators though, is that they're riskier. It requires more research. It certainly requires more investment. It definitely requires a little bit more of a heavy lift. Of course it requires more energy and effort to identify the value generator opportunities and then also to build them. So for example, I'll give you an example of a few value generators. So in that reporting example, Let's say we hadn't introduced reporting yet. So reporting, uh, introducing reporting into our product, a value generator, something relatively net new, didn't really exist before. Maybe it rests on top of data that already exists, but for the most part, from an experience perspective, reporting is a relatively new thing that we introduced. Now, once we start tweaking the reporting, that's where we get into quality of life improvement area and territory. And like I said, I'm not gonna say that quality of life improvements are not important, they are. But what I want you to think about is are we just building a whole lot of quality of life improvements and we're not expanding the value? And if that's happening, how can we create balance between investing in quality of life improvements and also value generators? And there isn't like a perfect, you know, split 50-50 or like 80-20. There is no perfect split. And I also want to make sure to add the caveat too that bugs are different. So bugs are their own category. Bugs are... You know, like you have this intention or desired outcome for a particular feature set. You build it, doesn't work, doesn't work as intended at all. It's a bug. Bugs are different. Those need to be fixed. They're in their own lane. And I imagine that depending on the stage of growth that you're in, there's probably a time where you're largely focused on bugs. And there's also probably a time where maybe like 5% to to 20%, maybe not even, maybe 10% of your time is focused on solving and squashing bugs. But then we're left with, do we prioritize quality of life improvements or do we prioritize value generators? I don't think that there's a perfect answer in terms of what split you have. I also think, too, it's it's going to depend on your market. It's going to depend on your team. It's going to depend on the cycles that your year tend to go in. But what I want you to be thinking about is, okay, do we have an understanding of what that is for us and are we expanding into value generators enough are we building enough value generators? The other reason why I mentioned this too is because I think a lot of teams just kind of assume that once they build the product and once they start making these tweaks, that's gonna be enough. And what I'm here to tell you is I've seen enough companies and I've worked with enough companies, both high growth, slow growth, no growth. And I can tell you that the ones that have really good healthy growth are the ones that are able to retain customers at least eighty percent revenue cohort retention after twelve months. Revenue cohort retention is a report, by the way, that you can take a look at inside of ProfitWell, Barometrics, ChartMogul, whichever one you're using. I believe they even also have it in. Oh gosh, I'm going to forget the name of that one. Charge B, I think. I think that they also have it in Charge B as well. But if you are, if you have around eighty percent. Revenue cohort retention after 12 months on average, you're probably probably going pretty well. And I would say try to get to 100% if you can or more. If you don't have 80% and if you're in the like 60 to 80% mark, what's happening is customers are churning for one of two reasons. It could be that your product is relatively cyclical in, in their life and they're churning and maybe coming back but if that's happening, it's usually because the product doesn't have enough other jobs to solve. It doesn't have enough other value to solve or to provide to the customer. So then we, when it comes to product growth at least, or growth through product, then we have to really take a step back and think, okay, is it because we're prioritizing quality of life improvements versus value generators? And then also when it comes to growth through product at least, I guess it's just product led growth. But anyway, when it comes to growth through the product itself, are we are do we do we need to provide value laterally, meaning we expand into maybe other jobs to be done that are kind of related to what we're doing? Or are there other jobs within the value that we're already providing that we need to make sure that we're solving for people? Even if they're smaller, it still expands the value enough. HubSpot is an example I would give for that. So HubSpot went lateral. So they first focused on the marketing team, and then they expanded to sales, and then to customer success, and then to support. The other way to think about this, though, would be even within marketing. So they started with email marketing, and then they moved over into forms and lead generation tools. Then they moved over into website analytics. Uh, I don't think that that was the exact order of things, but you kind of get what I'm saying, hopefully at least, especially if you're familiar with HubSpot as a product. But this is the way that we think about not only product management, but also product discovery. And this is also why I go back to what I said before. I mean, and this is my hot take, but not all founders, makers, builders, et cetera, are going to be good at product management. And that's okay. So here's what you can do, because I know some of you guys are like, probably like, oh, my God, maybe I suck at this, actually. And don't get me wrong. I am also I am absolutely not a VP of product. (laughs) If someone were to place me in that role, I would do probably exactly what you would do, which is like go take a million courses, read a bunch of books and then like, you know, (laughs) cross my fingers and, and try to build a team around me of people who are really smart. And I mostly guide them. So I'm not at all saying here that I am perfect at this. But what I will say is I know enough about this now, at least, and I've I've seen it done in other organizations enough to know I can tell when a team has really strong product management versus not. It just hits different. But all about to say, OK, so if you're kind of feeling like you're in this boat, there's a couple of resources I would put you on. But I would also recommend a couple of just questions to really think about, to answer. This is your homework, so to speak. But if you're kind of feeling like you're in this boat, there's really a few things I want you to do. The first is I can usually tell like this shows up in the KPIs and it usually shows up in that revenue cohort retention. So if you were to pull up your chart and if you were to take a look at what your six month average revenue cohort retention is and your 12 month, if again, you're above 80 percent after 12 months, you're, you're you're doing something right there's still room to grow. So the goal would be to get to 120%, which I've seen before. It's real, it's it's not, you know, totally magic, but growth does feel magical when you get to like 110, 120%. It's like amazing. But if you're not at the 80%, if you're more like 40 to 70%, there's a really solid chance that customers are churning for for various product reasons. And retention ultimately resides on, are we acquiring the right people in the first place? And when we do, are we solving enough jobs and are we telling people about those jobs to ensure that they stick around for longer? Otherwise, we're gonna have to replace half of our customer base or more every year and or every six months. And that is not a fun place to be. In terms of product and focusing on engagement and retention, I can absolutely tell. So if you look at your six-month revenue core retention, if you are in the 60% range or less, yeah, you there's something going on with acquisition and product, both of them. Mark, product market fit, it comes down to that in some kind of way. You might have a really good pulse on this. Like you might feel this, even as I'm describing it, of like, yeah, okay, like we know that we have some ways to go. But what I want you to be really discerning about is even with, even with you knowing that, what you're gonna need to discern is, where do we invest in value generators and what quality of life improvements are actually crucial? Because if you prioritize too much of the QOLs, but if you, if you invest in value generators, don't get me wrong, it's expensive. It's more expensive than making tweaks to existing features, for sure. But if you get really strategic about what the value generators are for you and your business and your market, I think you're going to find that you have much more staying power, even if it's not perfect. And I think that that's part of this, you know, this journey of product management, and product discovery, and getting really good at it. The second thing I I want you to do is I want you to take a step back and really think about where you might be at in terms of your product management journey. Are you a beginner? Uh, you are you maybe more advanced? If so, then there's a couple of resources that you can potentially leverage. I actually signed up for Reforge and a few of their product management classes. And I have to say, probably the, so probably some of the best content I think I've seen about product management. The only other two that I would recommend would be, only other two books I should say I would recommend would be Continuous Discovery Habits by Teresa Torres, of course. And, or no, excuse me. No, yeah, I believe that's right. And then Escaping the Build Trap by Melissa Perry. Those are the two books that I recommend to pretty much everyone doing product management in any capacity, even if you're a founder, even if you're a one-person solo team. I promise you, they are still going to be valuable resources, no matter what size you're at, because we want to escape the build trap. That's exactly the cycle that we're on, and even in the early days. Now, I do think that founders, of course, do tend to have pretty good product sense. It's a term that a lot of product managers will use to communicate the natural intuition that comes with what to build. That is something I do want to still honor and pay respect to with however the caveat of getting data to actually validate that product sense. Because nothing is more powerful than a hypothesis that you can relatively prove to be somewhat true, at least to the best of your abilities. And then, so I think the last thing is talking, like actually really talking to experienced product managers If you are a founder, and also if you are a product leader in your own organization talking to more executive level or more experienced product managers, I mean, there are tons of product communities out there. I really do fundamentally believe that if you spent time talking to other VPs of product, heads of product, product leaders, I think you'll start to see maybe where your gaps are. And that will help you discern, okay, here's what I need to invest in in myself, and also when I when I hire, I want to hire someone like this. I was working with a founder, still working with this founder, actually. We've been working together for a very long time. And I'll never forget he was doing product management his on you know by himself for several years. And then when he hired his head of product, it was like, it was like clouds parted. And suddenly he was able to see for the first time just what great product management looked like. And it was so cool to observe this in real time, both like in slow motion and also at the speed of light, because that's what startups feel like sometimes. But it was just, it was so rewarding and very, very interesting to see him kind of have the epiphany of, oh my God, I've not been doing this well this whole time. I can't imagine what it would have been like if we had hired this person sooner or if this founder had invested in those skills earlier. So I'm here from the future to tell you that you have the power to change this now. Uh, I'm telling you all of this to do a little bit of your own self-reflection of, is this something that you need to get better at um, if you can't hire a head of product anytime soon? Otherwise, can, can you hire someone? Does that make sense to hire someone who can lead product who has these skills? Because I can tell you that really good product management and product discovery I really do fundamentally believe it's part of what separates really high growth companies from those that are struggling a lot with growth. Growth ultimately comes from customers saying yes to the product, continuing to say yes to the product. And then when other people say, hey, do you recommend that product? The customer still says yes. And that can only happen with product that creates immense value to the customer. It doesn't even have to be great plenty of products out there that have, you know, they make billions in revenue. I'm thinking of Salesforce, for example. I don't know a single person that loves Salesforce, but does it provide business value? A hundred percent. So all I to say, it doesn't have to be perfect, but what it does have to do is it has to provide immense value and more value than the up and coming software out there that will eventually compete with you, even if you believe that you're ahead. Okay. Thank you so much, for entertaining this conversation today. (laughs) I know I came out with a spicy one at the beginning. But if you know me, you know, I say it with love. I say it with kindness. And I say it with the, hopefully, the encouragement to take a step back and, and think about how, like, where are you at in your product management journey? Where can you get better? What are some things that you do that uh, you know, are like you can trust that process and what are maybe some parts of your product management process that mm, need, needs a little bit of work. Think about your quality of life improvements and then also your value generators when you think about your roadmap, your backlog, whatever it is. Thank you so much again for listening. I'm also testing this. I'm, I'm writing a newsletter. I actually don't know if I've, if I've told y'all yet, but I'm writing a newsletter. It's called The Work and it's over on Substack. Uh, if you follow me on LinkedIn, you'll see me post about The Work there. But demandmaven.substack.com, this is where I'm publishing every week, not only these thoughts, but also real examples of the work. And I've got some really fun stuff coming up, everything from how do we map opportunities related to jobs and how do we see where our product fits and where we might want to expand. And yeah, I mean, there's just like artifacts and deliverables that I want to share with you guys, of course, anonymized, privatized, all the things. Uh, but if you join me over there, would love, would love to have you over there if if you want. Um, no pressure though. Okay. Thanks again for listening. I hope this was helpful. I hope it unlocked something for you. And again, saying it all with love, but yeah, I, I, I'd love to continue on this journey of learning more about product management and product discovery with you and tell you that we have We actually do have a lot of experience conducting product discovery for clients and then seeing them use it and turn it into product is really, really cool. Anyway, I digress. Thanks again, y'all. And we'll catch each other soon. Bye. As always, thank you so much for spending this time with me. To learn more about how to reach your growth goals for your SaaS business, head on over to demandmaven.io. You'll find all kinds of free resources, articles, and content. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already, and I'll see you on the next one.